Hope you enjoyed your bananas and bagels. All set to go. We get you charged up here. We don't charge you much for those bananas and bagels. Just a little bit. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 1. And uh, we are now in verse 21. Look how much progress we've made. In two weeks, we covered 20 verses. That's good. And uh, we'll finish out Mark chapter 1 next week. This is a very important chapter as it introduces the work of Jesus Christ and really introduces the meaning of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, we talk a lot about being a disciple or being a Christian. What does it all mean? And uh, this first chapter helps us understand that because we saw last time that Jesus calls us. Our discipleship begins with a definitive calling by Jesus Christ. He calls you by name, calls you in your heart. And it's an infallible calling. The calling that you have to follow Christ is just as infallible as the Bible is. The Apostle Paul had an infallible calling. He heard a voice, had a vision on the road to Damascus. And you have an infallible calling. It's that powerful. When he calls us to follow him, it is immediate, intuitive, personal, and it's infallible to our hearts. We've seen the gifts and calling of God, as Paul says, are irrevocable, irrevocable. So you can't be called and then uncalled. You're called irrevocably by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an absolutely marvelous thing. Truly marvelous. It causes us to marvel and wonder when we see how he creates his own disciples and creates a following. Well, it involves not only being called, but it involves being taught. And we're going to see that in our text this morning. Let's, let's read through verses 21 through 28. Now, you remember... That in the previous verses, Jesus had called Peter and James and John and Andrew. And they had, without uh, delay, he called them and they had left their father, poor old Zebedee, sitting in there in the boat with his hired men, wondering what happened to uh, Zebedee and son's company. The son's part just went uh, because when Jesus called, we, we answer. Then we find out more about the ministry of Jesus. Let's pick up with verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Okay, we're going to look at the first two verses, verses 21, 22, and then we'll look at 23 through 28. These first two verses, the main point I think Mark is making is that to be Jesus' follower is to be taught and to teach. If you're a Jesus' follower, you are taught and you teach others. He says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Come be taught by me and I'll make you teachers of others. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, yes, indeed, you are meant to be a teacher. That may not may not be a 
a preacher in a pulpit or a teacher in a Sunday school class, but you're meant to be a conveyor of truth to other people. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, let's look at several things about his teaching. First of all, his teaching is clearly a priority. If you look uh, in the Gospels, uh, you'll find 45 times uh, the word to teach. It says in the New Testament here, but it's actually 45 times in the four Gospels alone. And in Mark's Gospel, you'll find the verb to teach 15 times. You'll find Jesus called teacher 12 times in Mark. And you find him called rabbi three times in Mark. So out of the four Gospels, Mark uses the occasions of the word teach one third of the time. So there's more emphasis in Mark on teaching than there appears to be even in the other gospel accounts. It's a little strange because in Matthew and Luke, you actually get more of Jesus' teachings, more of his sermons than you get in Mark. But Mark is making a point here that the kingdom of God is, first of all, a proclamation. It's an announcement that the king has come, the kingdom has been inaugurated, that God is taking over. And it's interesting in in Mark and in the ministry of Jesus in, in general, you find that the kingdom comes through the announcement. It comes through the presence of Jesus Christ, but it also comes through the announcement. So that when you announce that Jesus Christ is Lord, there's a sense in which even in that announcement, the kingdom comes. You see what I'm saying? It's more than just announcing that the kingdom comes. It's bringing the kingdom by announcing that the kingdom comes. There's something dynamic and powerful, real, in the announcement itself. So Mark is making the point, the same point Jesus makes, that this is to be proclaimed. And so when you look at the ministry of Jesus, you'll find that he preaches and he teaches. So he makes the announcement and then he teaches his disciples about what the announcement means. And it is a clearly a priority in Mark. And you find here, he says in, the, in this verse 21, that it was in Capernaum, on the Sabbath, in the synagogue. And there, there's significance to each of those three words. Capernaum is significant because Capernaum was a nothing town. I mean, there's nothing. You, I don't think you'll find Capernaum in your Old Testament anywhere. It was not a, a village of particular note. The, the name Capernaum, Capernaum means... Uh, in Hebrew, village of Nahum. We don't, I don't think that's the prophet Nahum, just some old guy named Nahum. <laughs> just a village of Nahum. But what made it significant was that Peter seems to have lived in Capernaum. How many of you have been to Capernaum? A few of you have been there. And you remember seeing Peter's house that seems to have been preserved. And there's a, there's a chapel over the house there, as there are were many uh, historic spots in Israel. But uh, it seems that that's where Peter lived. And Jesus will note in a moment uh, or note in the next week that Jesus heals Peter's mother. And it seems that that was in Capernaum. The synagogue, if you've been there, the actual footings of that first century synagogue are still there. You can see it. Archaeological remains of that first synagogue. And you could actually walk into the, the remains of a fourth century uh, uh, synagogue that was built on top of it. So uh, you can go right to the place where this happened in this no-name village, Capernaum. But Jesus spent a lot of his time there because he hung out at Peter's house. That was kind of his, uh, his bed and breakfast. But it was on the Sabbath. It was on the day of rest. It was on the day of worship. And it was in the synagogue. He went to the place where the people gathered. The word synagogue just means to gather together. 
And he went where the people gathered on the day of rest. And so obviously it was a clear priority. He teaches, he heals, he casts out demons, he preaches. Those four things you'll see in Jesus' ministry. Same four things we should be doing, if you will. Preaching, teaching, casting out the devil, and healing diseases. That's Jesus' ministry. It's what we're to be doing today. But you can see here an emphasis on the holy day in the little village. So you can take the little village of Memphis. On the Lord's day, what ought we to be doing? We ought to be doing the same thing that Jesus does and be doing it all week. So clearly there's a priority in Mark with regard to teaching. Now, this is important for us to understand, uh, even if uh, this morning you don't feel like you know very much about Jesus. And you're you're thinking to yourself, "Where, where do I begin? Well, let yourself be taught. Become a, a student of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, evangelicals use the kind of language uh, of uh, coming to Christ. We'll call it, you need to accept Jesus Christ. Do you realize that nowhere in the New Testament does it say you should accept Jesus Christ? It does say you should receive him in John chapter 1. But the word of acceptance is not there. What, what is the biblical language for becoming a Christian? Well, look over at Colossians chapter 1. Leave your finger in Mark 1 because we're coming back. But look in Colossians 1. And here Paul is speaking to the Colossians about their faith and commending them for it. And when he describes their faith in Colossians 1, 7, he says, this is on page 1928. He says in verse 7, You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. You learned it. So he's saying you learn Christ. You learn the gospel by becoming a student. It's not just a once and done episode, but it's a learning. It's a process. Leave your finger in Colossians 1. I know you only have so many fingers, but hang on. And turn back a few pages to 19, page 1910. And here, Paul has been talking in Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 17, about Gentiles, how they're darkened in their understanding, futile in their thinking, and so on. They've lost all sensitivity, given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Then look at verse 20. This is Ephesians 4:20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Look at verse 21. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So he's saying you were taught Christ and you were taught to, to repent and believe. You were taught to put, on the, to put off the old self and put on the new. Now turn back to Colossians 1. I told you to leave one finger there. Don't blame me if you can't find it. It's just a few more pages over. Turn back to Colossians 1 and look at the Apostle Paul describing his uh, ministry in verse 28. Colossians 1, 28, page 1930. We proclaim him admonishing. So we proclaim him. We proclaim Christ. That's preaching. We announce the kingdom. We announce Christ. Admonishing and teaching everyone 
with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. So you can see the Apostle Paul teaches Christ. He announces him and teaches him. And uh, now you can turn back to Mark 1. And of course, this is what Jesus says when he invites us to come to him. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He says, come, take on my yoke. What's the yoke? Well, if you're an ox, it's the yoke that keeps you, you know, moving forward and pulling the plow behind you. So take on the yoke of Christ and learn of him. And that's how you come to Christ. You learn of him. And uh, you certainly find this with the disciples. Jesus didn't ask Peter in Mark 8, who do you say that I am, until they had been with him for a year and a half. Learning of him. So this is not just one crisis moment in your life when you raise your hand, go down, profess your faith and get baptized. Because Jesus said, remember, when he sent us out, he said, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey whatsoever I've commanded you. So the Lord, when he sent us out the Great Commission, it's a teaching commission. Now, this has tremendous implications for you and me if we're going to be Christ followers. We don't just get a few instructions on a Sunday morning or read our missions manual and go out and do a few things at work. No, we're constantly being taught. That's what it means to be under Jesus. Take his yoke and learn of him. And then through learning of him, we'll find rest for our souls. So it's clearly a priority. Mark is making this clear. That before Jesus ever calms the winds and the waves, before he ever casts out his first demon, he teaches. And that's exactly the way the church ought to be today. We're a teaching institution. We're a proclaiming institution, a teaching institution, a healing institution. But the cutting edge of everything that we do as as men who are following Christ is we're communicating something about Christ. You say, what are we communicating? Well, I'm glad you asked. We'll get to that right now. What's his teaching about? It's about the kingdom. If you look in verses 14 and 15, you'll see what it's all about. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And when you look in Mark's gospel, you'll find 19 instances of the word kingdom being used, and some of them in classical sorts of places. Certainly, Mark 1, 14, 15 tells you about the content of his teaching. But turn over to chapter 4 in Mark. And uh, here you have some of the parables. And, of course, Matthew 13 is the more classic place where you get the teaching on the parables of the kingdom. But his great parables, what were they really about? They were, they were about his kingdom. Look at uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 26. He, he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground and so on. So when he's talking about these great agricultural analogies, he, what's he analogizing to? The kingdom of God. And so he's teaching about, about this. If you look over at chapter 10, this is uh, some of the verses here listed. And look at verses 14, 15, this beautiful text about the little children. But have you noticed that when he deals with the little children and includes them, what he's really describing for them? They haven't understood the kingdom. He says people were bringing little children to Jesus. This is Mark 10, 13. To have them touch them, have him touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, 
let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So he uses children to talk about the kingdom. Get off your high horse as an adult with all your sophisticated and complex learning. And come on down here and see what the kingdom is all about. It's just simply about trusting your father and being dependent and knowing you're dependent and being happy with him and his presence. Just entering into his kingdom. It's that simple. So Jesus would use very simple analogies to explain what entrance into the kingdom is like, what participation in the kingdom is like, and what the challenges of the kingdom of God are like. And then look at uh, this famous passage with the rich young ruler. Uh, look at verses 23 through 25. After he's, the rich young ruler has left because he was a very wealthy man, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples, of course, were amazed at his words. But Jesus said, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They say, children, get in. Rich men, get out. Turns everything upside down. You're turning the children away and you want the rich young ruler to be part of the disciples. And I'm saying to you, the kingdom of God is the opposite of what you thought it was. Then if you'll notice in the triumphal entry in chapter 11... Uh, when Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, Mark remembers these words being proclaimed by those who are following. Look at verse 10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. So there are just some of the examples of the kingdom of God breaking in through Jesus Christ. And that's what he was teaching his disciples. And so often uh, in and I'm speaking of evangelical Protestant churches. So often you know, we just kind of have one message. You know, it has to do with conversion. Or atonement or justification. Well, that's certainly huge. But it's not the whole picture. The whole picture is the kingdom of God. So it's conversion and the kingdom. And they're both to be proclaimed because Christ is here. He has come and he's coming back. That's the content of Jesus' teaching. Now back to Mark chapter 1. Now let's, let's look at how he teaches. And just briefly, we don't get a whole lot on this, especially in Mark. But we know from other places that his teaching is expositional. And what do I mean by that? I mean that he's expounding or exposing the revealed word of God. And you'll find even in Jesus teaching, he often has a text. Uh, For example, in John 17, 17, he says he says to his father in prayer, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus proclaims the Old Testament as the word of God. And that's the word by which they are sanctified. So he believes in the power of the word. And then if you look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, what do you get Jesus saying? He's saying, you've heard it said of old. That is, this is how the rabbis interpreted that you should not kill one another. But I'm saying to you, you should not be angry with each other. You've heard it said of old that you should not commit adultery. But I'm saying to you, if you even lust in your heart after a woman. You see what Jesus is doing? He's taking the Old Testament law. He's using spiritual strippies to say to rip off the varnish of the rabbis and say they missed it. They externalized it. They cheapened it. They lowered the standard. I'm saying to you, the law actually meant this. And he expounds the law of God in Matthew five through seven. This is common sort of teaching for Jesus, expounding the scriptures. He had also used present day analogies to talk about the coming of the kingdom, which, of course, also, as we saw last week, is an Old Testament concept, by the way. 
I was referring to that outline that's on your tables last week, and one of you came up to me and said, we don't have an outline. I'm so sorry. But you've got it this week, the thing that I referred to last week. Uh, we'll try to do better in that in the future. But the, the content of Jesus' teaching is expositional. His method, rather, is expositional. And I'd just like to challenge those of you who are regular teachers uh, to think about this. If we're to be communicating Christ through communicating the kingdom, ought we not to be staying close to the Scriptures, being careful to expound what the Holy Spirit is saying in the Scriptures, instead of coming up with the neatest, cute little story? Now, I'm, I'm, I like stories myself, and I use them on occasion, and I'm, I don't mean to put anybody in a straitjacket. But the, the content of our normal teaching, shouldn't it be expositional? I just have to say that one of the, the concerns of my own heart among my own colleagues in pastoring and preaching is that I'm hearing less and less what I call expositional preaching from the pulpits of our day. And that suggests to me that probably in Sunday schools and small groups, we're getting less and less of real expositional treatment. How do we expect to be taught of Christ if we don't go to the place where we know he's authoritatively revealed himself and learn by hard study what the Bible is saying? So I want to encourage all of you to be taught and to teach expositionally. Then notice D, his teaching is illustrative. He's a master at this. You know, in Matthew 6, he's talking about not worrying. And he says, have you ever taken a good look at the grass of the field lately? It's beautiful. It's floral. It has colors. It's arrayed better than Solomon in all of his glory. And Solomon was the richest man on the face of the earth. And that grass is here today. It's gone tomorrow. Don't you think that God loves you more than the grass of the field? And he says the same thing about the ravens. Have you seen the birds lately? They don't seem to have any problem getting food, and yet you're worrying about what you're going to eat tomorrow. Don't you believe that God loves you more than he loves the birds of the air? Jesus was a master at this. So he was illustrative. He would take the things that people believe, namely that grass is beautiful when it's in, when it's in the rainy season and it's floral. Number two, that the birds seem to get along all right in life. We all agree with that. He would take what we all agree on and say, by analogy, then, wouldn't you think that the same God who created them would take care of the crown of his creation? It's a beautiful way to illustrate. And so Jesus was a master at this. He's always concerned to make it understandable and practical and useful in everyday life. His teaching was also confrontational. He says in Matthew 7, 5, if you take the doggone plank out of your own eye, you'd be able to help somebody with a little speck in their eye. It's so funny. Can you imagine you get this picture of a guy with a tube before coming out of his head. You know, if you take the tube before out of your head, maybe you can. Now you can start to judge other people and see if you can help fine tune their lives. He says, we're a bunch of hypocrites. We have this big tube before coming out of our head. We say, I think I see a little speck in your eye. And so he was always confrontational. Now, what do I mean by this? I don't mean that he was always trying to pick a fight. What I mean is when he taught. He applied what he was teaching to the people who were actually listening to him. On some occasions, he would talk about someone who wasn't there. But most of the time, he would talk about people who were there. And once again, in so much of our teaching, uh, especially in conservative circles, if you don't mind my saying so, I mean, we're pretty expert at telling people how bad the ACLU is. But I haven't noticed a whole lot of ACLU members in evangelical churches lately. And so who are we talking about? People who aren't there. We're confronting a ghost. 
It's pretty nice to confront a ghost. You can work up a congregation, get them all mad at somebody who's not there. But Nathan the prophet, if you remember, when talking to David, talked about another man who wasn't there. And David got angry and said, let me at that man. And Nathan says, you are the man. Now, that's confrontational. You're talking to people who are actually there. So, so often in our teaching, we want to talk about somebody. You know, all those people in the gangs. That's a real problem, we say. And drugs. And we talk about oh, everybody out there and all this. In the, and, you know, this, these homosexuals. We got so much heterosexual sin in our churches, we hardly know what to do about it. So why don't we start talking a whole lot more about heterosexuals and the unbelievable sexual license that's going on in churches represented in this room? I'm not, look, I'm not homosexual nor the son of a homosexual, uh, but, uh, and I don't believe in gay marriage. But, and we have homosexuals in our church. They're not practicing homosexuals, but they're homosexuals. They need to be dealt with tenderly and compassionately like everybody else. But by and large, as a group, the gay community has not decided to join up your churches. So, yes, it's a concern in the culture, but there's a much bigger concern right in front of our faces. Big plank, heterosexual sin coming out of the church's eye. Let's take that plank out. Then maybe we'll have the authority to say something else about some other group's sexual sins. Jesus always addressed the people who were there. And he applied the teaching to his friends who were there. And we need to do the same thing beginning with ourselves. When you look at the Scriptures, don't apply it to your slob brother. <laughs> you know, well, I sure wish he were reading the Bible this morning. Or some people come up to me you know, after a sermon and say, well, I sure wish my sister Sue had been here today. <laughs> she needed that. <laughs> you want to say, oh, yeah, Sue must be really bad, yeah. Well, why don't you start with yourself? And then let's start with ourselves as friends and let's get in each other's faces. And as I, as I said to our church uh, a couple of Sunday nights ago, you know what's so boring in politics is you get Republican Christians who are slashing the Democrats and Democratic Christians who are slashing the Republicans. How boring. Why don't the Christian Republicans slash the Republicans? Why don't the Christian Democrats slash the Democrats? There's plenty of evil in both of those groups. You can have a heyday. And if you happen to belong to one of them, you know more about the evil there than someone who doesn't belong to it. So why don't you just talk about yourself? Well, otherwise, we've got all these boring books, people throwing bombs against people they don't know very well, instead of talking to people they know real well. Jesus always talked to people he loved. Why? Because he didn't hate them. He loved them. And when he confronts us, it's not because he's trying to get rid of us. He's trying to include us. So he confronts us. And that's the nature of Christian confrontation. It's for the purpose of drawing people closer to the Lord and closer to yourself. Not to make yourself popular. Not to build a party. Not to get people angry. But to help people. And Jesus' teaching is truly prophetic. Prophets normally don't have a lot of friends. <laughs> I mean, but I can at least say this. Their main business or concern is not building a whole bunch of friends. Their main concern is to love the Lord and help other people do the same, no matter what it costs them. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Then, F, his teaching is incarnational. Mark 1.17, he says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He does not say, come follow this teaching. I'll tell you about the great rabbis. And that's what the rabbis did. Come, 
into my teaching and I'll teach you the great rabbis and I'll teach you the, the corpus of, of law and of the Torah. So just come and I'll teach you this. Jesus didn't say, come and I'll show you this. He says, come, I'll show you me. Come follow me. It's personal. It's, it's incarnational. You're following a person. It's a relationship, not a religion. It is a religion. But it's, first of all, a relationship. It's a religion that grows out of a relationship, unlike any other. So it's incarnational. And, gentlemen, you know as well as I do, this is, this is vital. If you want to teach your children, you've got to be able to say, come follow me. If you want them to respect authority, you've got to respect authority. When your board of directors says something to you, you've got to take it seriously. And if it's appropriate, you can tell your sons how your board of directors confronted you and told you something and you're submitting to it. And when the policeman stops you for going 72 and a half miles an hour, you need to stop and be respectful to the policeman and show your children how to do that. Some of you I know would never have that experience. <laughs> I'm so really sorry. You're missing something. <laughs> and you need to show respect for their teachers so that when they're having problems with the teacher, you don't dash into that room and smash the teacher. On behalf of your child, but you show your child how to go into an institution and obey its structures and you appeal. You don't demand. So we uh, are ones who are supposed to be able to incarnate the teaching. And so in every way we incarnate. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He incarnated it. So I remember one, some years ago when I was the pastor at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church uh, on once a year. I would ask my predecessor, Dr. George Long, uh, to preach on the Sunday morning. So the same time every year, it was his birthday uh, or the anniversary of his retirement. I would ask him to come preach on a Sunday morning. It was a great occasion. We all loved hearing George. And uh, George, uh, through his career, uh, what he would say to you is he probably, you know, the, the main cutting edge of his, of his ministry was probably not his preaching ministry. It was certainly his godly character his leadership, and the way in which he pastored those people, which was phenomenal. But I even in my youth, I'd, I'd hear criticisms from time to time about George's preaching. I always loved his preaching. But George would preach, and then uh, on that day when he preached, he would go to the main door, and I would go to the smaller door, we called it. And uh, some people, most people go out the main door and greet the preacher of the day. Some people go out the small door. I guess they were trying to get to the golf course or whatever. And... Uh, so I was at the small door, and uh, one of our deacons at that time, uh, Bill Chapin, maybe some of you know Bill, uh, he came out the door and he just looked at me and said, you know, Sandy, he says, I always want to know what George Long says about anything for one reason. I says, why is that, Bill? And he said, because George said it. Obviously, 20 years later, I never forgot that. I want to know what George Long says about everything because George said it. That is, his character was a constant uh, credibility for what he had to say. And when you're teaching Christ, you have to show Christ in your life. And when you do, and I look around this room, I know many, many people here who are just radiating Christ in your lives. When you do that, people want to hear because they see it lived out and it's a little strange. It's different. It has a ring of truth and holiness to it. So Jesus' life was obviously like that. They were taken up with him, and they wanted to know what he had to say about the kingdom. So his teaching was incarnational. His teaching is authoritative. 
of the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught not as the scribes and the Pharisees. He taught on his own authority. They, and, and the end of the Sermon on the Mount says the same things. They were amazed at his teaching because he taught with authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, what do we mean by this? When the scribes and Pharisees teach, even to this day in Judaism, you cite your authorities on a whole array of rabbis as it comes through history. If you have any ethical question, well, Rabbi Eliezer said this, Rabbi Hillel said this, Rabbi Shammai said this, and, and you cite your precedents, much as you would do in the Supreme Court. You cite your precedents for the cases that went before you and the statements that have been made through history before you. And then you draw logical deductions from those precedents and those cases and those statements made by previous rabbis through thousands of years. That's the way you present teaching from a rabbinical point of view. Jesus didn't do that. He said, you've heard it said of old this, but I say to you, no rabbi would ever do that, would simply teach on his own authority. Jesus was the first one. He came teaching on his own authority. I say to you, they had never heard anything like this. So his teaching was incredibly authoritative because he was teaching on his own authority and he was also teaching very personally. He wasn't just saying you can't commit adultery. But he was saying, look, I'm talking about your heart. So this personal authority of Jesus Christ goes right straight like a beam of light right to your heart and says, I'm talking about your intentions, your imaginations, your thoughts, your lusts and desires. I'm talking about the deepest part of you. So this ring of authority just takes people back and strips them. And they're just stunned by this new breaking in of a prophetic preacher who preaches on his own authority. He doesn't even say, thus saith the Lord. He said, I say to you. The prophets used to say, thus saith the Lord. Jesus said, thus say I. So this teaching of Jesus has incredible authority. And of course, we've got to bring ourselves under that authority and hear him as he's speaking to us right to our hearts. It's the same authority that we pass on to others as we speak for Christ to others. His teaching is amazing. There was power in it. There was life in it. There was practical application in it. It brought the immediacy of the kingdom to them. And they were absolutely amazed. And you'll find in Mark, there are eight different words for amazement. Mark is ransacking the dictionary to come up with words for amazement. And he uses everything he can think of through his gospel. And he uses them 25 times. Think he's trying to make a point? This is amazing! This teaching, the power of the Word of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is new and transformative. He's trying to communicate to the Roman Christians who are under the oppression of the Roman Empire and who are being burned in animal skins and being given to the lions to realize that this teaching is powerful and transforms life. So his teaching is quite something. And so, therefore, first of all, we must be continual students and we must be continual teachers. And, gentlemen, all I can say to you is we all need to be students of the Scriptures. I just can never stop thanking the Lord and thanking this church that I serve for and thanking Amen Bible Study for putting me up to studying the Bible. And I get paid for it. 
I can't believe this. Sometimes I just, I'll interrupt my devotions or my learning. I just have to put down my Bible, walk around and say, yay, God. I mean, thank you so much. This is unbelievable. And so I know I get paid for it, and I don't get any credit for that. You know, you're paying me. But what about you? You're not getting paid for it. Are you reading the Scriptures? Is it life to you? Are you putting yourself under his teaching? Are you trying to get a grip on what the Bible is? Of course you are. You wouldn't be here this morning. We're studying Mark this year. We want to get a grip on Mark so that Mark will get a grip on us, so that Jesus Christ will get a grip on us, so that we become his students just as seriously or more seriously than any academic course we ever took in our lives. We want to get this. We want to learn from it. And then we want to be teachers to others. And I want to say to some of you young men in particular, you need to think about being a teacher in the church of Christ. You know, some of you are really fine leaders. I've, been, I've watched you. And uh, I'm so grateful for that. But you know what? You need to learn to use your leadership to lead through the teaching and communication of Christ and His kingdom. And you have, I know this because I used to be a young man. And I used to have certain inclinations in my heart, but I wasn't taught. Until someone says, hmm, we don't have a teacher for the junior highs. Wilson, what about you? <laughs> okay. And I go in there and I tell the students, you know, what I know, which is very, very little. About all I know is that Jesus is Lord. That's about it. And I go to the junior highs and I have, you know, I'm talking about Genesis. And so I have Abraham married to Rachel, you know, and Isaac to Sarah. And everybody's raising their hand. Mr. Wilson, I think it's the other way around. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, well, of course. Yes, of course we all know that. Yeah. Uh, and so you're not going to be a teacher unless you go out there and make yourself an idiot. And one of, the, one of the problems of being a teacher is you will be an idiot every week of your life. You'll say something dumb and stupid. I say it every Thursday morning. Something comes out that's dumb and stupid. And so you've got to get out there. But this is the way you're going to proclaim the kingdom, the way you're going to lead people to Christ over a long period of time. You teach them. And I want to challenge especially the young men here to think about going to someone who can help you, who is a good teacher, asking them to download with you what makes them a good teacher and what they suggest you do if you're thinking about it. And then you need to partner up with someone and be a team teacher for a while. So let's find ways to do this so that we are not only students of the Lord, but we are teachers of the Lord. Now let's look at these last five verses. Last six verses, 23 through 28. To be Jesus' follower is to be liberated and to liberate. This teaching is in order to goodness. This teaching is powerful in order to set us free. The purpose of the word of the kingdom is to destroy Satan. First John 3, 8 says that Jesus came to destroy the old kingdom. He came as a conqueror. And he has done it and is doing it and will finally do it. And that's what's going on right now. And we need to enter into that. So that we're first of all liberated. And secondly, we become liberators. That's the whole purpose of the kingdom under the Lord Jesus Christ. This great hymn that we started off with by Martin Luther, uh, A Mighty Fortress. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we trembled not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. And what is that one little word? It's the word of the Lord Jesus Christ proclaiming the kingdom of God, and he is destroyed by it. As the, the great ex expositor Matthew Henry once said, Christ's doctrine is Satan's destruction. 
And so the, the purpose of truth is to destroy the kingdom and the empire of the evil one himself. And you see it right here. You want to know where these devils come from? Why they come out of the woodwork, apparently, when Jesus comes around? We don't hear of a lot of demons before Jesus came. When you read the intertestamental uh, literature, of course, there are demons there. There are even some exorcisms that go on. But by and large, you don't find this plethora of demons all over the Holy Land. But when Jesus comes, my goodness, they're coming out of everywhere. Why do you think that is? Because, number one... The devil is the father of lies, and Jesus is speaking the truth. The devil hates the truth, and he opposes it at every place, and he's doing it now, even in our city. You'll find the devil at work opposing the truth at every place. But even more importantly than the fact that he's the father of the lies, he is the ruler of a kingdom. And what you find here is this classic Power struggle between the force of good, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the forces of evil. And we're going to learn some very important things about this struggle in these few moments that we have to look at these verses. Jesus comes to clean up this place. And one day he's going to clean it up completely. But when he was here, he showed us something very important about this struggle. I want us to look at it. First of all, we need to be liberated. There's a demon even in the church, isn't there? He goes to synagogue. Worship. There's a guy demon-possessed. We need liberation. We are bound. And all you have to do is read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where we're dead in trespasses and sins, and we are by nature objects of God's wrath. That's the best bad news. We're in rough shape. We need to be liberated. Every man in this room needs to be liberated. You may not think you need to be liberated. The Jews didn't think they need to be liberated. They told Jesus so. We've never been in bondage. Of course, they forgot about Egypt. We've always been free. We're Abraham's sons and daughters. And Jesus explained how everybody is in bondage. And they, he said, were in bondage to the devil himself because he had pulled the wool over their eyes. They thought their churchmanship was making them free. And Jesus cut right through it and said, you have to be, you have to be free indeed through the word of the kingdom. There's a new kingdom coming. So we need to be liberated. And secondly, the world needs to be liberated. Now, there's not a demon behind every bush, as some would think. But demons are around. The devil is alive. And he's trying to wreak as much havoc as he can. And when I look at some of the inexplicable evils, internationally and domestically, honestly, there's only one explanation for it. The devil is up to his work again. And I won't go into it. See, Jesus is the only liberator. Look what happens in verses 24 through 26. The demons know him as the liberator, number one. Here's what they say. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Basically, they're saying, Jesus, this is none of your business. That's what they're saying in contemporary English. What do you want with us? What does this have to do with you? What do we have to do with you? Why don't you just leave us alone? You just be the preacher. Let's not get into this uh, kingdom stuff. And then they say to him, have you come to destroy us? They know. You may not know, but they know. And they are threatened. It scares the bejabbers out of them. They're terrified. And we'll see more of this later on in Mark's gospel. Thirdly, they say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You may not recognize Jesus as the Holy One of God. You may not understand that he's the Son of God. They know it perfectly. James says, oh, so you believe. Very good. The devils believe and shudder. 
A lot of people say they believe in God. I don't find them shuddering. But the devils believe and they shudder. Why? Because they believe what they believe. They know he's the son of God. And they know that he's come to take over. And they know they're the enemies. And they know they're doomed. They're terrified. Some years ago, maybe 15 years ago, these Peretti novels were very popular with people. You know, piercing the darkness and this sort of thing. If you read them, you know, you have Tal, T-A-L, the head of the angels, you know, in this novel. And then you have... Uh, you have the devil and his demons over here. And if the church prays enough, they empower Tal to take over the demons. But if they don't pray, then the demons can come over Tal and his angels and take care of them. What a, what a misunderstanding of the kingdom. You may think that it's good over here and evil over here, and if you pray hard enough, good will take over. Let me tell you what the demons know. The demons know that they're from the underworld and they're damned. And the Lord Jesus Christ is head over the underworld. And that's the reason that it says when he comes back, he every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess, including the tongues of the demons, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what they know. And they're very good theologians. They're better theologians than anybody in this room, beginning with one who's speaking today. And they know that Christ is Lord and they're terrified. So with all due respect to a good novelist, this is the reality of the matter. Christ is Lord and he's taking over. And if you want to see how he's taking over, well, let's just study the rest of Mark. And you'll, you'll, you'll see what a total takeover is like. So that's what's going on. Jesus is the only liberator. He takes total control. He says basically to him, shut up. Be quiet. Come out of them. And then you notice that the demons must obey completely. They have no choice. They don't like obeying. They're not submitting to him because they love him because they adore Him, because they want to be part of His kingdom. They hate His kingdom, but they cannot help but obey Him. And that is, that is the reason that if I ever get involved in a, uh, an exorcism, God help me. I mean, I'm a Presbyterian. What do I know about these things? But if I ever get involved in an exorcism, I would say, Jesus, help! <laughs> hey, over here! <laughs> You're not going to find me doing any hocus-pocus or you know, any of these things. I'm just calling on Jesus. Come and take care of this. You're the demon conqueror. You come and conquer this one. You're the demon caster outer. Come and take this one out too. That is his business. He's cleaning up the mess. And Jesus is being displayed clearly by Mark as one who by his teaching, teaching Christ, the kingdom comes into reality because the demons will oppose it and then he casts them out. You see the power of the teaching of Christ? The power of Bible study? The power of communicating the truth? It changes lives. And indeed, Jesus is the good news because they couldn't help stopping, but they couldn't stop talking about him. Everywhere the news was spreading. Well, of course it was spreading. These people have been oppressed by evil, unopposed, unexplained, unconquered. And here comes one who teaches, and they say, it's a new teaching. It has authority. That is. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It's not just a religious ritual. It's not just a liturgy that everybody kind of gets in sync with, gets the rhythm of it, and just mm, mm, starts humming or doing, doing something else and kind of getting with it and working up your religious affections. And goodness gracious, here comes the Word of God and it changes things, changes my life, changes my perspective, changes my nation, changes my world. This is new. This has authority, they said. Yeah, right. 
You know why? It's the teaching of the kingdom of the king himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing is that when you go teaching Christ, Christ himself is teaching. In Romans 10, Paul speaks about how shall they hear unless someone preaches to them. And in the midst of that, he says, and they are taught Christ. They are pre- Christ is preached to them. Christ himself preaches. In, in that text, you can look at it. And the point is that when we proclaim the kingdom or when we teach Christ, Christ is personally teaching himself just in days of old. And so when we get to the therefore here, we've got about two minutes left. Let's look at this. First of all, we must be continually liberated and cleansed. We are in bondage. And the devil would love to tie us up in the knots. And you know what that's like. You, you get into a situation and you're tempted to cover it up and not talk about it, not to repent, not to deal with it, not to come clean. You're tempted to pull the shades down and just feel guilty and awful, which, of course, paralyzes you, which is exactly what the devil wants you to do. Instead of coming out and confessing your sins to a brother, to someone who can assure you of the Lord's forgiveness and his love, and rather than coming clean and being held accountable for a restoration process, we just want to be just stay in the dark, play the game, and the devil has us where he wants us. We need to be liberated constantly, liberated and cleansed constantly by the teaching of the Word of God in our own lives and coming clean with our confidants, our closest brothers, who can hear us talk about our own failures and forgive us. And secondly, we must, be continu- we must continually liberate and cleanse our environment. That is, the Word of God goes out every day through men like us. Every day. When someone tempts you to do a deal that's not quite right, you're casting out a demon right there and saying, I'm not going to have any part of that crap. I'm not going to have someone just mess up my life and my environment, just come here and dump on us, just bring evil, open it up to the full sway of the demonic world. Am I going to do that? No, I'm going to take a stand right here. We're not going to do business that way. When someone tries to take advantage of an employee and not pay them a fair wage, I'm not going to do that. That just invites the demons to take over and take control here. Or someone to, to, to lie about something internally in their work. Or someone to, to just look the other way with sin. Or someone not to deal re- really with their marriage or their family. You're just inviting the underworld. So we take a stand every day to cleanse and liberate our environments, beginning with our homes, going to our churches, our neighborhoods, our communities, our city, and our nation. That's the task of a Christ follower. We are those who are taught and teach others. We're those who are cleansed and liberated, and we cleanse and liberate everyone that we have an opportunity to cleanse and liberate around us. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the kingdom of God, which is taught us and taught by us to others. Thank you for the kingdom of God, which liberates us from all the powers of evil. And uses us as messengers of liberation to a world that desperately needs to be set free. Make us, O oh God, your disciples today, taught, cleansed, teaching and cleansing. Through Jesus Christ, the Lord of the kingdom. Amen.